Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of currently streaming horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews may include mild spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. I scrubbed this here place twice over. And I say you did nothing of the sort. And I say you swab it again and you swab it proper like this time and you'll be swabbing it ten times more after that. And if I tells you to pull up and apart every floorboard and clapboard of this here house and scour them down with your bare bleeding knuckles, you'll do it. And if I tells you to yank out every single nail from every mold and nail hole and suck off every speck of rust till all them nails sparkle like a sperm whale's pecker and then carpenter the whole light station back together from scrap and then do it all over again, you'll do it! And by God and by golly, you'll do it, smiling lad, because you like it. You like it because I says you will. Today's review is of Robert Eggers' sophomore nightmare, The Lighthouse, which is currently streaming on Prime Video. Following two lighthouse keepers whose sanity is put to the test once they become stranded on a mysterious New England island in 1890. And joining me to spill his beans is returning friend of the show, writer and director Rob Harmon. Welcome back to the show, man. Thank you. Uh, It's good to be back. Yeah, so last time you were here, we chatted about The Witch, and I thought it would be great to explore Eggers' second work with you, because... We had such a great in-depth conversation about it last time. Um, And this is a film that, much like The Witch, I get a better appreciation every time I revisit it, right? I mean, we joked last time, seeing The Witch in theaters with no subtitles and then watching it at home with subtitles, it becomes a very different movie. Yes. And I think that that is the same exact kind of experience I had with this initially. I mean, like you you and I chatted before we started recording, like we've both seen this so many times already that... (laughs) <laughs> it's amazing that every time we revisit it, we still come away with something new or we come away with a new sort of appreciation. And I think that that is really telling of Eggers' works in that his films on like a first glance, they're kind of just very, they're simplistic premises. And then yes. the more that you kind of revisit them, it's more about the presentation and all of the different kind of layers that he adds to those, uh, f- both films actually. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree. He There's a... There's a deceptive sort of simplicity to his narratives, and that, at least from the two we've seen so far, they 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 tend to be about a small group of people going out into an isolated wilderness to try to tame it, and that isolation ends up kind of turning on them and turning them towards madness or towards a mad reality, depending on how you want to <laughs> interpret it. But yeah, there's he packs his movies to the gills with just research. You can really tell that he has a background as a production designer because he's he's always atmosphere first. I, I've probably listened to every podcast and interview Eggers has given on The Lighthouse, and he always leads with, it started with an image when his brother pitched him the script, and, and he keeps using the adjectives crusty, dusty, musty, rusty in, <laughs> in every interview. It, it became like, okay, this is his go-to, and that's that makes sense when you see the movie and even reading the script the first page of the script says something like this script has to be shot in black and white in this aspect ratio with a mono soundtrack and it's like wow this guy he really thinks these things through absolutely and i think that what's very telling about his films is is that the minute they begin you can tell that there is a quality and a drive behind kind of the authenticity of that period right and trying to Mm. replicate that authenticity and his ability to do that to basically to like at the T and then to the point where you're basically in that world. And then the way that he's able to really take these supernatural twists and supernatural elements and he's able to insert them into these worlds in a way that it doesn't come off as phony. It doesn't come off as being kind of it doesn't break the spell of the world that he's crafted, basically. Right. right? It feels very much in line with that world to the point that, yeah, you could see that happening. You could based off of the fact that it doesn't reshape all of that legwork that like you just described where he's set designing and mm-hmm. he's, th- he's thinking with the set designer's point of view. And he's like, I have to hit these specific feelings and tones yeah. and, a- and atmospheric notes. And yet his ability to have a supernatural twist on that, I find, I mean, with this film and hopefully his next film, like he continues to grow on that skill set of his. I, I agree with you. In fact, I would say 
his stories thrive in that space where it's grounded in a sort of reality, but also the otherworldly is organic to that. And I, I'd say he can only really pull that off, at least so far in these period movies, where it's pre-internet, pre-wide information, back when the world was full of a bit more darkness and mystery, and people believed in witches in the woods or mermaids in the sea. And yeah, he, he comes at it from like, well, this is the reality those characters would have lived in. They would have believed, you know, oh, our crops are dying and our baby went missing. I guess it's a witch. <laughs> I mean, again, much like the witch, the film's premise is fairly simple. And I mean, mm -hmm. we have Robert Pattinson who plays uh, a mysterious kind of green behind the ears wiki named Ephraim Winslow, mm -hmm. who's paired with the equally mysterious veteran wiki Thomas Wake, who's played by mm -hmm. William Defoe. Um, and as the duo's four-week stay is extended, the sort of initial tempers that flare and the tensions truly boil over into multiple interpretations of madness, which I yeah. really love and kind of just appreciate more and more. But, I mean, in this film, much like in The Witch, it's very dialogue-heavy focused. Mm -hmm. And I think that in The Lighthouse, it's more so to a degree that a lot of the scenes, they go on for a lot longer. It's just very simplistic. It's two guys having yeah. a conversation. And I'm interested what you think about kind of the Shakespearean-esque approach to uh, The Lighthouse. Ooh, that's a good question. Well, it definitely, I, I know Robert Eggers, at least one or two of his parents are Shakespeare professors. And that shows, and his, his ability to really tap into that. And, you know, he was also an actor and he came from theater. And that also shows as well, a, th a theater friend of mine when i sent her the scene where they're just barking at each other and going what 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 that's <laughs> she said oh that's an acting exercise we do that in theater and i was like oh that makes a lot of sense because it it felt very much like yes and and yeah in a story that small you kind of have to have some powerhouse actors and some di some meaty dialogue because otherwise you know, it's going to be hard to pad the runtime. There's only so many times you can show them drinking and then a montage of them boxing or almost kissing or whatever. It's interesting you you bring up their names because in the script, they're just credited as young and old. That is, mm. they, they, they're really boiled down to really archetypal essences, which I, I find, I can't help but comparing that to The Witch, and the way, you know, there's there's kind of the youth and the adult. There's there's this this internal battle between or external battle, this conflict between youth and age the age, more aged people. Um, that I see in both the lighthouse and this. In terms of like the names, I don't know if if they had stuck with young and old, obviously in the film, I don't think they would ever have said that, but I think if they didn't sort of identify them as two separate individuals, then there might only be one real interpretation, which I think would be something along the lines of like, hey, this is, he's seeing a reflection of himself, what he's going to become, what Ephraim Winslow oh, is going to become. Of course, um, And so I think that in identifying the fact that they're two separate characters, you can still have that interpretation and yet it opens it up a lot more. I hadn't but, even thought of that. That's interesting. Well, in in the script, they're also like they do name themselves. They say, I'm Ephraim Winslow, which kind of implied to me that both these guys might be unreliable narrators. They might both be mm -hmm. lying about their identity, about who they, right. as, as we find out with Winslow, his name is Thomas as well. I mean, I watched this over Zoom with one of my buddies who had never seen it. And the first thing oh, he wow. said to me, he was like, that feels like a play. <laughs> and so yeah. I was and I was like, yeah, that's why I love this so much, because Again, we get a lot of those exterior shots that are fantastic, and it's mostly Winslow walking around the property and doing, or the island rather. And right, but there's but there's no like dialogue or anything happening when they're outside. Yeah, exactly. So a lot of the scenes of dialogue, it's just two guys having a conversation, and the dialogue is so meaty and it's so rich in kind of just getting you into the period, the le the lingo and the slang that they're using. That I mean. I'm enamored every single scene of them just having dialogue in a way that, I mean, I'm not necessarily like the biggest fan of period films and things like that, but with this, mm -hmm. it's so engaging that I, yes. I hang on to every single word and syllable that these two powerhouse performers uh, say. 
Absolutely. I mean, you really need actors of that caliber to sell it. I mean, Willem Dafoe is practically doing a SpongeBob pirate impression. And so it's hard <laughs> to like, it's hard to do that and like sell it, you know, and make it, this is, this is Oscar worthy, but he does. You completely buy when he's going, yar, swab dog, you know, it's like, wow, he, this is, this is real for him. And when they punch in, when Pattinson, I think it's their second or third dinner together, and Pattinson's asking, why is it bad luck to... Oh, no, he's telling him not to mess with the seagull, and Pattinson kind of laughs him off, and he slaps him, and then they punch into, like, this this Ingmar Bergman-esque close-up of Willem Dafoe, and I know I can say that because Eggers is obsessed with Bergman, and just the way the light's falling on Willem's face, and he's, like, chewing his food, and bits of food are falling out of his mouth, and he's just, he's just, you can already see he's losing touch with reality mm -hmm. um yeah yeah there's there's a rich texture to the film from the performances to the look to the 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 cinematography they used lenses from like the early 1900s that was one of the things i was going to bring up is just what mm. do you think about that stylistic choice to not only shoot the film in black and white but really it's the the fact that the aspect ratio is i believe it's what 19 to 1 and shot on like 35 millimeter i mean that sounds right how do you think that that stylistic choice like warranted for the type of story that they're telling? And I mean, obviously, I guess the answer to that is yes, but what kind of texture do you think that that lends to this particular story? Well, that I don't know if I would automatically give a yes, actually, because I, I could answer that as an audience member or as a filmmaker. And as a filmmaker, I can't help but look at it and go, that's so pretentious. <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, but I'm, I'm a different kind of storyteller. I'm more of a plot first and Eggers is more atmosphere first. So it makes sense for what he's going for. Sorry, what was your second question, though, that you built off that? Was it successful? Was it successful in kind of lending a specific texture to the story? Could you see this? Oh, film, absolutely. Yeah. Could you see this film being like The Witch, where it was... I mean, it was a reduced aspect ratio as well, but not to this mm -hmm. degree. And obviously that was filmed in color. Right, right. Um, no, because there's there's a verticality to the aspect ratio that really lends itself to the film, where a lot of the film is two guys standing in a room. Well, with a box aspect ratio, you can get both guys just and see both of them standing. Or you get the lighthouse, which is a big vertical image and so it's it's really compressing everything and making you feel kind of claustrophobic with these guys and yeah I, I would say it's definitely a part of the atmosphere um i don't know if you ever saw i think you did you did a podcast on it comes at night yep yeah they they played with the aspect ratio and that in similarly kind of claustrophobic effect yeah absolutely and that's a great comparison because that is what i attribute to this kind of decision to film in that aspect ratio in black and white. Like initially uh, as a viewer, I was like, well, is this just being a little up its own ass based off of how <laughs> right. successful the witch was? But then obviously right. once you get into that world, I can't see this movie being as claustrophobic, being as indicative of the period had it not been um, in black and white. And with that aspect ratio, mostly because all of the interior shots are, I mean, they're so claustrophobic. You feel like you're you're sitting at the table with them when they're having dinner, and they're kind of yeah. they're kind of being super uh, shitty to one another in very kind of like <laughs> passive aggressive ways. And yeah, like a married couple. Yeah, exactly. It really does feel like a marriage. It does, and I mean that's why it's so hilarious when Pattinson mm. at one point is like, "Oh, stop being such an old bitch" or something like that. Yeah, to phone. Yeah. It's like yeah, it almost feels like you're watching a couple that has been on this island for. Uh, 40 years living together or yes. something to that effect. It, yeah, yeah. And I I agree with what you're saying about the aspect ratio and the texture it lends because those, even though we're cramped in there with that aspect ratio, we're getting to see the whole room. We're getting a real sense of geography of the place they live in. And that's important because it gives us touchstones to like come back to. This is, this is the, you know, this is the kitchen. This is the dining room this is the boiler room i guess i don't know but i had i actually had a thought about the decision to go black and white to go with that aspect ratio to go with a mono soundtrack 
and that was the thought that after the success of The Witch, Eggers developed a couple different projects, and they even announced a couple that never just took off. There was, you know, a mini series about Rasputin. There was hmm. a movie called The Night. There was a Nosferatu remake that still isn't. I would love to see, but still isn't uh, happening. And so I can't help but wonder if these really intense creative decisions um, for the lighthouse came came from a point of kind of like screw you I'm gonna do I'm gonna make a really directory movie or write a script anyway and then that happened to be the one that they're like oh yeah we can make this and so I, I can't help but wonder if that was kind of like a reaction to having a bunch of other projects not go through make the thing that is like 150 percent Eggers just like hey I'm gonna write this far yeah. out there and have these kind of antiquated filming or presentation styles, but yes. then the script is just so well-written and it is explicitly honing in on the atmosphere. And again, it's not complex. Yes. And yet he's able to give these many layers of texture, whether it be atmosphere or dialogue yes. and all these things that it really is a film. Most people couldn't replicate. I, yeah. Yeah. Because and I think coming back to the simplicity of the narrative, it's because He's pulling from these archetypal storytelling tropes that, like, unconsciously or not, everybody recognizes. You know, we all recognize kind of the, the, the these these Greek myths in these biblical stories that he's pulling from. I mean, most most clearly to me, this is the story of Prometheus, and kind of I don't know if you're familiar with Prometheus. It's a pretty basic myth of the you know he wants to he wants the light and stealing and fire which is stealing fire from the gods exactly and then he he gets punished by having his liver eaten by bird <laughs> yeah. and it's like that's that's part of the curse like if you watch it with subtitles when when <laughs> when Willem Dafoe gives his big moment his hark triton and just calls down an ancient sea curse on Robert Pattinson he mentions, you know, may you have your liver picked out by <laughs> dead sailor souls, which he established early, earlier was seagulls. So it's he makes it look easy because he almost is cheating just by pulling like like he stops himself from going full HP Lovecraft, which I appreciate. He just throws in a couple tentacles and just leaves that there for texture. Um but yeah, just kind of going from Greek myths and even the Bible. Like there's a there's a moment after he kills that we're, we can talk spoilers. I yep, imagine, absolutely. right? Yeah, okay. Yep. I could I couldn't remember. There's a moment where he kills the seagull that's been plaguing him, and it's one of the most just it's one of the best scenes of the movie because you don't see it that coming, and you don't expect it to be that brutal, and it's kind of funny and kind of cathartic, and it just decimates this bird. <laughs> To the point where there's almost nothing left. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just a rag. Um, and then immediately after, you hear the foghorn, and it almost sounds off. It sounds atonal. It sounds like God yelling at him, and he kind of cowers and looks up at the lighthouse, like it's, like it's God. And that felt like to me, like Adam and Eve has have just eaten the apple, and God is angry, and now they're going to be punished. And it just, it just, he he's relying on such yeah archetypal imagery and storytelling beats that we're all kind of ingrained to know yeah and so he on that he can build he can he can lean more on the atmosphere because he's doing those things yeah it's the uh his creative implementation of things that like you said are kind of tried and true in a lot of ways pulling from very direct places and things that we're all familiar with to a certain extent and yet he's able to kind of like put his stamp on it and incorporate it in a way where you can still make these comparisons and yet it's not necessarily completely beating you over the head with it. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. that's part of what I love so much about The Witch on that rewatch when we were discussing it. And of course The Lighthouse in that there's so much ambiguity and he never just definitively gives us a answer for anything that happens. And yet of course. the worlds yeah. are so rich that you can draw your own conclusions and you can draw your own interpretations of multiple interpretations of this story. And I think that what's different about the lighthouse to the witch is that the ambiguity and the kind of 
clarification on what could like a potential outcome of what is happening it's a little more definitive whereas mm-hmm. in the witch it kind of is very vague kind of like when we were talking about interesting i feel i feel the opposite oh you feel the opposite okay uh, yeah I, f- I feel like the lighthouse is a bit more because the lighthouse is more it's more subjective it's more this is robert pattinson's point of view and it's more internal it's the the witch plays more with perspectives of the whole family and it could be seen as kind of like oh if everybody's experiencing it then maybe it's actually happening but that's just me that's interesting that you take that what what's your interpretation of the lighthouse so i have two interpretations and one is is that okay. it it is very much that wake is basically a uh projection for pattinson essentially of like what he is becoming or even yeah, or you perha- said that that's yeah. interesting because I, like I, I draw so many comparisons between the two of them to the extent where it's like why is he not drinking alcohol at the beginning of the movie we're never mm-hmm. explicitly told and yet he's paired with this guy that is a raging alcoholic which we find out later in the film <laughs> right and so i it always could be like that. his tyler durden right exactly in a certain way yeah it's kind of like a it's a cautionary reflection almost of like you have you're literally seeing what you're going to become and if you don't alter your course in some way because we see that robert pattinson or we're told rather that his character moves around constantly he was a timber man he's tried yeah. all these different things and yeah. nothing is stuck and it's like hey maybe this is the job that should not stick as well because otherwise you could become like this man wake and how he's alone he's interesting he left his family and all of these things and he obviously he becomes a raging alcoholic so that is one of my interpretations and it's like yeah again like you said the isolation factor it this is a very much a psychological film it's like what is what is real and what is not from the singular character's perspective and in that regard that's one interpretation i like that i really like that and then the other one is what we had already discussed which was prometheus not prometheus oh yeah prometheus and yeah prometheus i forget who pattinson is supposed not pattinson but uh william defoe he's supposed to represent oh proteus Proteus or Zeus or yeah, the old yeah. man of the sea. Mm-hmm. Kind of a he's kind of a mix of different Greek figures: Triton, Proteus. Yeah, yeah. That's that's for me the more fun interpretation is to go. Willem Dafoe is an ancient sea deity. <laughs> yeah, and this is his way of like having fun. This mm-hmm. is what he does um, until he is usurped. But yeah, I've never considered that Willem Dafoe might be a projection, which would be so interesting it it might be yeah maybe there's a version of this movie where it's just robert pattinson is manning the the island all by himself or that or that he killed that skipper that or not the skipper but the assistant wiki and that he is blaming that on someone else he's his mind has kind of like created this right alternative narrative but i mean i again like i agree with you i think the prometheus angle is the much more interesting one and that lends itself to Edgar's kind of restraint that he has, right? Like you said, mm-hmm. he never goes full HP Lovecraft. We never see yeah. a massive monster crash through the island or anything like that. Which if I if I had written that movie, that definitely would have happened. <laughs> that definitely. <laughs> you, and me, you and me both. But uh, yeah. I love the, we get a few tentacles and then we get the fight at the end of the film where mm-hmm. Robert Pattinson is like beating him to death essentially. And then we see the mermaid's hands come up and she's like sticking her fingers in his mouth. And then we see like William Defoe's character is completely changed. He's covered in barnacles. He's got like a barnacle crown. Yeah, he looks like a sea god. Yeah. And I love that there's only two or three instances like that in the film. Also, there's that hallucination at the top of the lighthouse um, when he's naked, I think. And he's like shining light into his face. You think it's a hallucination? Well, is it a dream or is it? Yeah. <laughs> it's it's ambiguous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My favorite, my favorite part, and God, I think Willem Dafoe just gives my favorite performance I've ever seen from him in this, is when Robert Pattinson is trying to leave, and he runs out and he gets the lifeboat and starts to take it out, and Willem Dafoe comes after him with an axe. He says something that is easy to miss. Willem Dafoe goes, "Don't leave me," and then starts chopping the boat up. And that's a very interesting thing for him to say, which is an acknowledgement of like, it's not him saying, don't leave. He's saying, don't leave me. 
which shows that Willem Dafoe's character craves this company. It craves, he craves, you know, to ha have Robert Pattinson, whether he's human or not. And then immediately after Robert Pattinson, he chases Robert Pattinson back into the lighthouse and uh, immediately starts gaslighting him and going, <laughs> I knew, I knew you was crazy when you chopped up the lifeboat just mm -hmm. now. It's like, what? That's <laughs> that, it's the delivery really sells it. And I, I crack up laughing every time because he's just running mental circles around poor Robert Pattinson, who's just trying to keep up with all of this. I keep calling them by their actor names. Yeah, I, I do the same Thomas, thing. But, uh, Ephraim and Thomas. So that's a great example of why I think that I would agree with what you said earlier in that Proteus is essentially messing with Prometheus, right? Prometheus is kind of like revolting, who is Robert Pattinson. Again, we're kind, yeah. of, <laughs> kind of interchanging I don't all remember, these I don't remember if it was Proteus or Zeus, but, but yeah, Pr Prometheus and the gods. Old man of the sea, essentially. Whereas yeah. the old man of the sea is fucking with this younger, rebellious person, yes. who, and he's getting entertainment and value out of it. And it's kind of like why he yes. keeps egging him on to drink and things like that. From the from the first night too, like like Robert Pattinson is trying like uh, it's against regulations. I want to do that. He wants to lie low, you know. Right. He he maybe let a man die, and now he's on the run and trying to you know lie low and behave. <laughs> and Willem Dafoe immediately, yeah. There's something to what you said about Willem Dafoe being a projection because he could be the id. You know, he could just be just this untapped chaotic personality inside Robert Pattinson, which I'm sure plenty of people have thought that, but for some reason I didn't. And I mean, he's deriving pleasure from that yeah. gaslighting that you mentioned, right? Cause he's getting, yeah. he's very gleeful about it. And if that's, that's an interpretation or it's like Ro Robert Pattinson really is losing his marbles and it's like, Oh, is that how that happened? Because we're only perceiving what Robert Pattinson is perceiving. It's very, it's very much his subjective experience again. And that's what I love so much about these films that Eggers is making is that we can have conversations like this. And if we introduced a third party and they told us their interpretation, it could be completely different. And yeah. I think that, again, that speaks to the volume of kind of just the different, not only narrative angles, but then kind of different stylistic choices and all of these things. But it, for this film, I think it's really defined by that duo of Defoe and Pattinson, right? I mean, I mean, it's the movie is them. Yeah. It's their experience and their dynamic and relationship and their their, their homoerotic vying for power over mm -hmm. each other. It's really a dominance thing where where it go where very quickly Willem Defoe establishes his dominance, which in the laws of society he would be the boss. Mm -hmm. He is. The boss even though he's short and old and and kind of kooky and you know robert pattinson is young and virile and strong and then the, those those dynamics shift and threaten to break and that ends with you know literally robert pattinson standing over him going bark bark boy bark mm -hmm. because he he keeps associating defoe and whether defoe's character is intentionally doing this or not he's playing into authority figures from Robert Pattinson's past. You know, he mentions his old foreman as Jot that used to call him a dog. And there's something very interesting, at least to me, that I caught on this rewatch, where Robert Pattinson's talking about where he came from and how he mentions how he left his dad to go work at X, Y, and Z. Instead of saying, I left my family or I left my parents, he left his dad, which tells me that Maybe there wasn't a mom in the picture for Robert Pattinson, but he his dad was like kind of a defining figure for him. Just it's it's one mention and it's very brief, but watching it with subtitles, it's like, oh, interesting. Because later when he's having a meltdown and yelling at Willem Dafoe, he goes, you know, you're not the president. You're not my father, <laughs> you know, kind of, which is a very interesting, specific thing for him to go to. Right. And I don't know if Robert, I don't know if Eggers is being conscious about that or not. That might just be an unconscious thing that I'm unpacking. But it 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 is interesting to me that the things he seems to associate Willem Dafoe's character with that 
Willem Dafoe is kind of a blank slate. You know, he's mm-hmm. he, he's like this this chaotic Joker type figure with multiple choice origin stories. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so there's plenty of room there for Robert Pattinson's character to just kind of fill in and go, oh, you're a father figure and therefore I hate you, mm-hmm. which comes into all these old archetypes that stories as far back as we can remember have been dealing with. Right. And again, it kind of speaks to just the heady nature of this story and the isolation that's really forcing him to confront not only his past, but the people from his past. Right. And I think that that's why initially there's obviously tension between them, but he puts up with a lot of bullshit from Defoe early on. And he does, even even if he has some, uh, some daddy issues that have not been dealt with properly, like he still sees him as a figure of authority and Mm -hmm. up to a certain point, like he he deals with that bullshit and he takes it on the chin, right? Yeah. Like you had said earlier when Defoe strikes him after he kind of mocks the idea that goals could have the souls of dead sailors in them. Mm-hmm. He strikes him and yet he stands there like he's ready to tee off on William Defoe. Yeah. And then William Defoe kind of just like hangs his head and Pattinson just lets it go. And so right. that of course is not the case later in the film. Like you said, where it gets to the point where, Instead of Defoe calling Pattinson a dog, it's reversed. And he literally yes. has him on a rope leash and he's leading him out to the to the provision pit where all the extra moonshine yeah. or whatever was. And he, <laughs> he starts burying him alive. I yeah. mean, it's very That's interesting the way that. Yeah, I love. I mean, again, the fact that neither of them were nominated for an Oscar is absolutely insane. Because Don't get me started on that. They just have such phenomenal performances that. It really is like you're watching the emotions of characters that you've known for a very long time unfold in under two hours. I mean, yes. they're, it's, I can't say enough good things about their performances. I mean, even on it's, like a fifth or a sixth yeah. rewatch, it's amazing. And I know I've heard Eggers is a very specific director. And mm-hmm. that was frustrating, at least for Pattinson. Mm-hmm. Because Pattinson doesn't like, from my understanding, he doesn't like to rehearse. He right. just wants to... He wants to be fluid. He wants to, you know, discover the scene or whatever. And Willem Dafoe's a bit more old fashioned. He wants to like, no, let's get it down. And so that kind of lended a natural tension between them. Um, and then Pat Eggers would, would spray a fire hose at Robert Pattinson for take after take after take. And, and it just sounds like a very not fun set to be on as an actor but we as an audience of course enjoy it we relish in their pain right oh absolutely there's a there's it's huge schadenfreude just getting enjoyment out of their misery but going back to what you were saying about yeah how that power dynamic switches between them where robert pattinson goes from allowing a slap on him to just physically dominating defoe's character that that really is the the sign that the social structure has crumbled. It is going down because the only thing that really says that Willem Dafoe wasn't charged was that is the social, the social hierarchy. And once you take that away, well then it's, it's survival of the fittest. It's who's, who's the younger, stronger animal is going to take dominance. And that really, it's really an exploration of, I mean, I don't know if that's part of masculinity, but this really is a movie that explores masculinity and toxic masculinity, if that's a term that you're a fan of. I mean, it's certainly fitting for this, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, it does, especially juxtaposed with something like The Witch, which like it's interesting that these are the only two movies that Eggers has gotten off the ground, because I'm sure he didn't intend for them to be like companion pieces because he developed a bunch of projects after the light after the witch and this is the one that got made but whereas the witch is known very vocally by the horror community as a feminist horror film you know it empowers women and this is a movie about just men going crazy and being in their machismo running amok and them not allowing themselves to be too vulnerable because there are a couple moments of vulnerability that you see between the characters that then gets weaponized. It gets, it's used against them. You know, like when Pattinson spills his beans and tells a secret. Cause he's like, I trust you. No, I don't trust you. But <laughs> he tells, 
he tells him, you know, he spills his beans or there's a moment where they're slow dancing and they, they share a tender, a tender moment that might lead to more. And then immediately they're like, nope, let's box, you know, and then they just start fighting. There's this really interesting uh, homoerotic subtext. It's barely even subtext. It's pretty thickly strewn in yeah. there. It's unavoidable. On. It's unavoidable, yeah, especially with Robert Pattinson masturbating every other scene. <laughs> it's <laughs> to a piece of wood in a shed by himself. To, I mean, you gotta you gotta make do with what you have. <laughs> but even like subtler moments, like when they get super shit faced together for the first time, and they have mm-hmm. that moment where I, I think the transition is that they're banging on the tables and singing. They're celebrating that they're yeah. going to get relief, and then the next scene they're sitting around the fire and. They've, they're both smoking and they've swapped what they're smoking, right? So I didn't Will, notice that. William Defoe's character smokes a pipe and yeah. Robert Pattinson smokes cigarettes and cigarettes, it's reversed. Yeah. So now Pattinson is really? smoking his pipe and William Defoe is smoking cigarettes. And I, so didn't no, I didn't notice that at all. Wow. That's one of those things that I was like, oh, these are two men cut from the same cloth. That's where I kind of, mm-hmm. it reinforced my interpretation of it almost being like a projection of what Pattinson will become. But- in terms of the kind of like the homoerotic nature between the two mm-hmm. of them and what kind of transpires, I mean, a cigarette's one thing, right? You smoke a cigarette and then you throw the butt away. But a pipe is yeah. something that you hold on to, from my understanding. I've never smoked a pipe, but you carry that <laughs> with you, right? It's a piece that yeah. you have, and it's yeah, it it's becomes more, a, it's more it's more personal. It's an oral fixation too for the yeah. character who's like gnawing on it, whatever, and so. Sure. For Pattinson to have that and to be using that and to not have taken it from him, it's been willingly given to him. Like that's just another layer of intimacy between the two of them that had there not have been that isolation forcing them there, like maybe they're exploring another side of themselves where it's just a subtle way to kind of show it. It's not necessarily the intimate moment that we see later when they almost kiss, Mm -hmm. but it is very much an indication that there is a familiarity there that's growing or that that almost i can't believe i missed that jay that's that's really good um wow yeah i never caught that 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 almost feels like it could be something like on the day of shooting the actors suggested like what if i was smoking his thing and he's smoking mine but like that could have easily been i don't remember that being in the script um wow yeah that's really good that's one of those things where i was like because i that's what i thought i was like is, am I, is this something I'm just reading too much into? Like, I've seen this now six times. Am I making right. up explanations for things? But No, I mean, it's, be- it's better noticing that than kind of hitting on the same, the same couple things, which is like, you know, the lighthouse is a phallus and this is about <laughs> masculinity. And right. it's like, okay, yeah, but I've heard that argument. And I've, I've seen those. But the pipe and cigarettes, I've never heard anybody touch on that. That's, wow. I wish I had known that so I could have thought on that more, but I'm discovering that now as you've just brought it to light. I mean, it really lends really itself cool. to that scene where they get, it's kind of like that moment where they're, they're acknowledging almost that they're growing closer together. And then as soon as Pattinson mentions the light again, that power dynamic is mm-hmm. in, is threatened essentially. And so then all of yeah. that sort of fondness for one another completely disappears. Yes. Because they're they're reminded of the elephant in the room. That is this thing they cannot agree on. It's this thing that Willem Dafoe is holding over Pattinson, whether intentionally or not. Um, wow, that is so interesting. Yeah, that that probably the reason I've never tied them in together as the same character is because their vote Eggers really put in a lot of effort to specify, like down to their accents, how different they are. You know the. Willem Dafoe is an old salty sea dog and Robert Pattinson sounds like Daniel Plainview from There Will Be Blood. You know, he's, right. a, he's a New England or wherever he's from. He, he's a lumberjack. And you really get a sense of the distinction between these characters, which I liked. It would have been easy for both of the characters to have vague Atlantic accents and just call it a day. But Eggers very specifically was like, no, they... They should sound like they come from different places. And now for a brief intermission. If you've been enjoying this episode of Daily Horror Habit, please take a moment to subscribe to the show on your preferred streaming platform or leaving a review on iTunes. And thank you for your continued support, which drives the show's success. And now, without further ado, let's get back to today's horrifying episode. 
I suppose also, maybe I'm saying it like I view it as literally being his own self. I think it's more like, hey, this is what you you are very more than likely right. going to become, right? Because a metaphorical, this, like this yeah. is an older you. No, yeah, I get that. I get a, that. A metaphorical uh, cautionary tale, as it were, because let's be honest, he's on the run, right? He's mm-hmm. has he's never found a post that he takes a shine to, as he says. But but that's from that's from his that's from his own admission. So there's no telling. Like he might have been forced out from those places. You know, like like have you seen The Master? I have I have not yet. That's one of the ones that's on my uh, you got you guys see that because the the first couple scenes are walking Phoenix kind of being a nomad and bouncing around after World War Two. Yeah, yeah, you should watch that. I won't say more than that. All right. That's on Netflix. So I'll definitely uh, I'll Uh, I'll move that up in my queue. It's such a good movie. It is. It's it's hypnotic. In fact, it might be a good uh, comparison to The Lighthouse because it's also kind of hypnotic and surreal and also an examination of a male bond, which those mm. are hard to explore in film because it's mm. it's hard not for 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 a lot of heterosexual guys to go <laughs> gay, you know, right. when it's just depicting male friendship, which is a very pure and old school thing in storytelling. Not to uh, not to pimp my own podcast too much, but I just Go recorded an episode on um, The Exorcist Three. Have you ever seen that? I have not. So that is a highly underrated movie, just because you would not really? assume the third movie in the Exorcism series would be good, but it's phenomenal. And there's a angle that the first half of the film focuses on, and it's on probably one of the strongest male friendships in horror, where it's about this detective and this priest, and they have this shared trauma. And it's such a authentic and rare portrayal of a male friendship. Whereas two men that are able to jump between like breaking each other's balls and then having moments of like, they're able to express their concern and their feelings and admiration for one another in a way that it, like you said, it kind of defies the trope of like, dude, if you hug me, like that's good. Like that kind of thing. (laughs) I mean, not to go off too much on a tangent about that film, but it is very rare. And I think that, the moments in this film where there is that tenderness between them, not even just them embracing and about to kiss, but it's more so they start off so hostile with one another or mm-hmm. rather they're Pretty just quickly. two yeah. different people in two different places. And one is not looking to make any friends. The other is asserting this dominance throughout the film over the other one. And those brief moments where they have that kind of like decency with one another and they're taking the time to, inquire about one another and they're being civil which i mean it's the bare minimum you should know you would normally do with people but i think that having such a hostile relationship from the jump it makes those moments of civility that much more impactful in a way that i don't think a lot of movies do between male characters Hmm. i'll I'll definitely have to see it do i have to have seen the exorcist too uh no we no? make a we make a point in our episode to say that that is a horrific sequel that has oh wow nothing to do with um, Exorcist three. Okay, okay, I'll have to I'll have to check out Exorcist three then. Yeah, it's on uh, Prime and Two uh, B TV right currently. But cool. uh, yeah, cool. I'm very fickle with demon possession films, so I'm I'm interested to see how I like it. But that's that's cool to hear. In getting back to the lighthouse, really yes. something that I'm continued to be enamored with is just. Edgar's ability to capitalize on the atmosphere of this island. And he's mm-hmm. able to do it in a way that he captures the bleakness of that environment so well. Again, like I'm from New England, so I'm, I've been on the coast and the shore and all these things during shitty weather. And he captures <laughs> it in a way that is personified to a degree that I hopefully will never experience, but it taps into it so much so that it's somewhat relatable. And yet it's to an umpteenth degree that. Well, yeah, nobody it's, should ele- live there. it's elevated. Yeah. He, he's creating a slightly elevated reality mm-hmm. and that, that definitely reads. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it comes back to just the decision, the stylistic decision of the black and white. So it's constantly dreary, even before they get hit by that Nor'eastern. And I mean, mm-hmm. the lengths that they went to kind of just assemble this atmosphere where they built like a 70 foot, real lighthouse that yeah it was it had to withstand the crazy weather that they had and i believe what they filmed in nova scotia I, that's what i read yeah yeah so just an absolutely brutal shoot that it really comes across in their performances as well just they do not seem like they're enjoying making this film at all and no they don't they don't and i, I think there's a reason pattinson isn't in his new viking movie 
I, I don't. <laughs> uh, no, I'm I'm probably reading into it. Willem Dafoe's in the new Viking movie. I oh, think, he is. I didn't know. I that. think I I think he's the only American actor, unless unless I read maybe Ethan Hawke's in it. But hmm. yeah, that's. I can't imagine that Robert Pattinson would be in a hurry to get back to that. <laughs> right. Especially now that he's Batman. <laughs> Can I talk about something kind of random and possibly psychological analyzing Robert Eggers? Something that just a thought I had. Please uh, do. Yeah. Okay. I want to talk about the mermaid, which mm -hmm. is the only, the only real hint of the feminine energy in the lighthouse and juxtapose that with the witch that seduces Caleb in the witch mm -hmm. where Ro Robert Eggers seems to have a penchant for casting dark haired women, with very angular Eastern European features that look kind of like supermodels. Mm -hmm. And I wondered why he did that. And then I looked up what his wife looks like and I was like, Oh, well he married one so that, <laughs> that to him seems to be like, the epitome of if I were reading into it and being a psychologist, which I'm not the epitome of feminine beauty and femininity. Mm -hmm. And that's why he has the witch look like that when she seduces Caleb. That's why this mermaid shows up looking like that. Mm. And I just, I just found that a very interesting, again, maybe I'm just reading too much into it, but he hasn't cast, you know, a blonde to seduce anybody. It's very dark, dark haired, angular women mm -hmm. no i think that's that's a fair comparison to the witch i mean mm -hmm. also kind of just the role that femininity plays in the lighthouse is obviously much different and incorporating that into kind of like the maritime superstition of the film mm -hmm. itself like this film dabbles in that a lot whereas the mermaid is the charm essentially that he finds yes. in the bed and it's it's not lost on me that it's a literal object of a woman right and yes. the only ways that Pattinson really views her is like, hey, he wants to have an sex object. with her. Yeah, an yeah, object. Yeah, and that, that reminds me. Another thing, neither the seductive witch, any of the witch, actually, nor the mermaid has dialogue. Like, they never talk. They're just, they're, you, could, you could say they're an object, but they're also a force. They're, 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 they're kind of viewed as this otherworldly thing, which I think is another... Another thing that if you want to really dig down into archetypal masculinity, femininity is the the juxtaposition and the complement, but also kind of the opposite. And to to men, women are kind of an otherworldly thing to try to be understood mm -hmm. or to try to attain or to try to objectify. And I think he really taps into these really yeah, he, he taps into these big ideas with just imagery in a very sophisticated way. But again, maybe I'm reading too much into it and maybe just the women with dark hair look better in black and white. I don't know. <laughs> a, uh, a reasonable conclusion to draw. But I mean, I think that, again, that is what is so stellar about his both of his films. And I mean, we don't have to get too much into like, which do you prefer? But I think that there are certain oh, man. variables that he is carrying over from the works that he's expounding upon in similar but in slightly different ways and i think that again like the the films that he makes are so mm -hmm. layered in all of these things that it gives you multiple interpretations of everything and i think it's a credit to his talent as a filmmaker that we can have these conversations and revisit these films multiple times and we catch ourselves are we reading too much into this or is there really right. A meaning behind this right right which a lot of a lot of professors of like literature are like reading these classic novels and going, you know, the, the dog represents death. And then the author's like, no, that's just a dog. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so that's, do you have a preference? Lighter, the lighthouse or the witch? I prefer the lighthouse, even though I have a better appreciation of the witch after talking with you about it and getting to revisit mm -hmm. it, just because I'm so enamored by those two performances and the dialogue. I mean, I'm not even that big of a fan of like Shakespeare or classical literature, but mm. I literally hang on to every single word that they say, no matter how many times I've seen the movie. It's that's great. It's so fantastic in the way that it's very telling. Like I said, I watched this with one of my friends who had never seen it. 
And he was like, yeah, that kind of just felt like a Shakespearean play. But he had this, yeah. he had this kind of like attitude about it. And I was like, oh yeah, well <laughs> that's why I fucking love it. Like it's, yeah. it's so I've, fantastic. I've shown, I've shown it to friends who've had similar reactions. Like, why'd you make me watch that? Right. Like, Cause it's great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, I think, I think I like the witch more, but I've definitely seen the lighthouse more because mm. it's, it's even though it's a bit longer of a movie, it doesn't feel as long. And I find it more rewatchable because it has a more of an appetizing sense of humor. Right. It, it doesn't take itself. It's not quite, you know, it's not smashing a baby up within the first 10 minutes. <laughs> right. It's, it, it's, it's Willem Dafoe farting around and it's like, okay, this is kind of fun. It's two men mixing honey with turpentine and then shouting monkey pump. Uh, monkey pump. Yeah. Yes. But I think what it, I would agree that this is, feels like a more watchable movie. Yes. Even though it's longer, and I think that's because obviously we know more about, or we're we're given more information. We don't know how reliable that information is about the yeah. characters, right? And there's there's less to read into because it's such a simplified story. You're given a finite amount of pieces, and then you get to look at those pieces. There's the old man. There's Pattinson. There's the man Pattinson let die or killed. There's the mermaid. It's it's very, there's not as much to dissect. And therefore you can scrutinize more things. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, again, it's easier for me to form a bond, so to speak, with those two characters. Whereas with the witch, I felt like these were <laughs> yeah. just people we kind of like were following around and yet we yeah. didn't really have a great sense of who they were. Other yeah, it's than, a it's a body count. It's yes. like there's this family. They have mm -hmm. a bunch of kids who are all going to die. And it's <laughs> spoilers for the witch. But <laughs> right. Listening to a review of The Lighthouse, you should probably have seen The Witch by now. I assume. I, I can't imagine there are too many people who sought out The Lighthouse who didn't see The Witch. Right. I kind of I, I kind of assume. I mean, I hope. Yeah. Well, it was it was just funny because we you and I have been joking repeatedly about like, it's a different film with subtitles. And that was the first thing my buddy said when we finished the movie. Mm -hmm. He was just like, yeah. how the fuck did you watch that in a theater with no subtitles? And I was like, yeah. but that is such a testament to the lighthouse, I think. And it's like, mm -hmm. yeah, I'm obviously missing a good chunk of like dialogue that you can really read yes. into on a rewatch. And yet I never feel lost in the movie. I feel no, like it's, the, the performance really tells yeah. you what you need to know. And yeah. just the way that he operates that space. It was like what you were saying earlier. It's a claustrophobic perception or presentation of environments, and yet we still have all these landmarks. We never get lost in a scene because he does such a good job of mastering the yes. space on the island, exterior and interior, I think. That, that's what he's doing, I think, before there's even a dialogue. It's, it's just Robert Pattinson walking around the interior, and we're seeing this is this room, this is that room. This is the bedroom where he hits his head on the door frame because it's too cramped. But even before that, even before they go inside, like there's no, they arrive and then they walk past a duo, another duo of wikis yeah. that are leaving and they a don't pair say of guys anything. who probably, they, they, yeah, those guys probably had a normal time. They had a nice time. Their, their time was a bit more like Portrait of a Lady on Fire, if you've seen <laughs> that, which is a delightful movie, very different movie. But in walking past those wikis, they don't have dialogue with them. They don't even acknowledge no. each other. And I think that that is so telling in just, again, setting the overall atmosphere of the movie. These people are not having, they're not coming off of an experience that makes them interested in having pleasantries with other people. They want to get no. the fuck off of the island. And I think that that interaction is important because then or, it, it or kind lack of, of interaction yeah, or lack of interaction yeah. uh, signifies why Pattinson and Defoe are kind of staring off at the ship as it leaves because they almost yeah. want to be like those wikis. And then obviously Defoe heads in first and Pattinson is probably thinking to himself like, what did I sign up for? This, this, right. this is very foreboding in a way I did not anticipate. Right. Versus Defoe, who's like, great, I'm going to see my honey, who I haven't seen in a while. Yeah. The light. That <laughs> is one true love. What, what do you think is inside the light? So that is probably the most like cosmic horror element to me. I think it's supposed yeah. to be this, this otherworldly power that essentially mm -hmm. it grants you power through madness. Right. And we see that with Pattinson where he finally gets up into the light. He's killed uh, William Defoe. He gets up there and he stares into it and he has those few seconds of like ecstasy almost. Yeah. And then, or he becomes transfixed by it. 
And then it yeah. is quickly replaced with fucking madness where he starts screaming and the image is distorted, but also like the sound that he's making. The sound, screaming. yeah. Yeah, it's it's blown out. It's like too it's like too much they're communicating. This is too much for the movie to even handle. Mm-hmm. Which I think is incredibly powerful than having like, I don't know, a li- if we, we never actually see what is in there. It's all implied. No, and yeah. for that reason, I think it is all the more stronger. It might, it might just be a very hot light bulb he's touching. <laughs> <laughs> this is why you don't stare directly into uh, light bulbs. I love the the final shot, too, where it's literally oh, yes. the depiction of Prometheus, where he's yes. lying on the rocks and he's getting shit on and they're eating his liver. And it, it's hard to tell eye. this. It's hard to tell just from seeing it. But in the script, it's specified that the one-eyed gull is sitting on him, pecking at him. Yeah, it's eating and his I, liver, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think, oh, that's... Oh, that's yeah. beautiful. That's very poetic. And it's it feels obvious. It feels like, well, of course this is everything about the movie feels inevitable. I never it never takes a plot turn where I'm like, oh, that that was unearned or that was I don't see where that came from. Everything because they're pulling from such archetypal storytelling. It's like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And now that I see that the movie has gone this way, there's no other way it could have gone. And I think it's very telling that you assume, and obviously throughout the course of the film, this is not going to have a happy ending or the ending that he wishes. And yet it's never, I don't know how to say this really, but it's not so overbearing in the gloom and doom, right? A lot of it is coming from just how harsh and severe the elements in the atmosphere are. It's not a place you would ever want to be, a situation you'd ever want to be. And yet the sort of drasticness of what is happening it's never like you said earlier like a monster crashing out of the waves maybe i said that but sure it's never something so overtly gloom and doom you are going to die it's very much kind yeah. of these tensions boiling to a unfathomable place yeah I, I mean we talk a lot about the atmosphere of the movie but i don't know if i would define it very strictly as a horror movie because it definitely right. doesn't it doesn't have much of the atmosphere of a horror movie. In fact, mm-hmm. it has some comedic cuts that are like straight out of a British comedy. Mm-hmm. And so, it, yeah, I, I think that there is atmosphere, but it's it, it's more... It's more like the el- the presentation of the elements, yeah. whereas it, yeah. they're never at each other's necks until the very end of the film. It's more like the environment is at their throats the entire movie. And they're yes. never allowed to forget, even before the Nor'eastern shows up, right? He's yeah. walking around doing these shitty duties. And yeah. the, like the one scene that I love is when he climbs up to replace the shingles and you yeah. get that perspective at the bottom of the ladder. And it's not, it's a perfectly beautiful day out. And yet this mm-hmm. rickety piece of shit ladder, like you think he's going to fall off and break his neck. Right. Right. And that, that whole theme of going out into an isolated wilderness to conquer it is something very explicitly stated in the witch Mm-hmm. Like that's a line that the father says, we will conquer this wilderness, you know? Right. And that, that to me, I'm seeing more of that here. I'm seeing that these are men who are out here in unfathomable, possibly supernatural wilderness. And they're trying to, they're trying to force themselves on it. They're trying to dominate it. They're trying to, you know, they, we see Robert Pattinson feeding coal into the boiler or whatever. I don't know how that works, but it's machinery and it's, it's brutal. And it's an attempt to put order where there is chaos. And we see that chaos wins out in the end. And so that, yeah, that to me is just more, more theme shining through. Absolutely. Yeah. And in, uh, in wrapping up, were there any moments that I kind of uh, passed by that really stood out to you that you wanted to speak on? I don't think so, man. Monkey Pump is about as good as it gets. <laughs> this movie, it's it's a ride. It's a it's I, I wanted more of it. I want mm-hmm. more of it, but I'm glad I didn't get more because it yes. says what it needs to say and it mm-hmm. gets out and it's yeah, it's just it's a thrill. If they tried to if he tried to do more than what we got, I feel like then it starts to border into territory yeah. that you almost can't take seriously because like what right. more can he do that isn't completely over the top exemplified to a degree where it's like unignorable like you said like full-blown cosmic horror or something to that exactly extent. or or even like hammering in things like i heard there was a festival cut where there was a shot of an erect penis that then transitions into the lighthouse and they des- they decide <laughs> you know what that's that's not subtle <laughs> it's, it's a, a little much <laughs> yeah it's a, it's a little like yeah it's like we get it 
Um, So I think, no, the movie really strikes the perfect balance. Perfect. I think that's a perfect place to kind of, uh, to end things. But as always, man, I, uh, I always appreciate you coming on and chatting, uh, horror or psychological, uh, thrillers and whatnot with me. So thanks for having me, man. This is really fun. It was cool to revisit it. And, uh, yeah, I hope you got something out of this. I did. Absolutely. I always, I always do in chatting with you, but, uh, now, now, now I need to rewatch it and pay attention to the cigarettes <laughs> and pipe. I can't believe I missed that. Um, see, that's the thing. Now, after talking with you, I'm going to have a whole new appreciation and things that I need to focus on for my uh, mm-hmm. seventh rewatch. But you and I are <laughs> uh, are planning to chat again sometime soon about a different film, but I can't wait to have you on again, man. Oh, yes. I'm very looking forward to that. Well, thank you, Jay. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow at Daily Horror Habit on Instagram and at Daily Horror Pod on Twitter.